If you turn on an NFL game today, you're going to notice what is to me a very interesting phenomenon, that the majority of the fans in the stadium are all wearing jerseys. Now, there's nothing wrong with that. When I was in middle school, I had several jerseys of my favorite players that I would wear to school, not just to a game. But it's interesting to me because the jersey is meant to signify something unique, that I'm on the team, that I'm in the game. And that there's nobody else who wears that same number with the same name that I possess. And so, for example, Drew Brees, they, they played earlier today. Uh, Drew Brees is the quarterback for the New Orleans Saints, which means he wears the black and gold number nine, and it says Brees on the back. And that signifies him as unique uh, outside of anybody else there, except the 35,000 other fans who are also wearing black and gold number nine with Brees on the back that are sitting in the stands. Now, what's funny to me is those people are not on the team. They're not in the game. They don't even share the same last name. Their last name isn't Breeze, more than likely. But in, as a show of support, they're wearing the jersey. Now, that's all fine and good, of course, unless Drew Breeze gets hurt or gets traded or, or signs on with another team or retires, and then all of a sudden the jersey's no longer significant, right? What most people will do in that case, they'll either stuff it into the back of the closet, or if you're really a, a, a passionate fan and Drew Brees leaves you for another team, you'll burn his jersey and throw it in the trash. You'll get rid of it because now I hate that jersey. My, my favorite player left and now he's wearing a different jersey. And so now I need a new one with a new number and a new name on the back. You know, it's, it's funny for me to think about that and whether, you know, you, you may not have a jersey in your closet, but we all have allegiances things that we hold very dear to ourselves that we're committed to. So maybe in your family, y'all all drive, y'all drive the same kind of automobile. A lot of families, we're a Chevy family, we're a Honda family. Our, we have two cars, they're both Hondas. Uh, we have an allegiance there. Uh, some of y'all only buy one brand of ketchup. Even if other ketchup is on sale, we buy, this is the brand that, we grew, that I grew up eating, right? We, and, and it's funny, if you actually look around your house, you probably have commitments, allegiances to things that you don't even recognize. They've just been ingrained in you. This is just the way it is. Well, today we get to talk about allegiance or commitment uh, to something far more significant than Jersey or condiment. We're talking about the church. And if you were here last week, we talked about the church in terms of our identity and our purpose. The big picture of the church that, that Peter gave to us in 1 Peter chapter 2. And what we saw is that the church is absolutely unique in terms of who we are by God's grace, and we're absolutely necessary. We serve an eternally significant purpose in this world by God's calling and his command. Um, that's who we are as the church. But here's a, another thing that is, that is true, just in the culture that we live in. Most people don't hold the church in that high of a regard, even Christians. That, that sense of, of I'm a committed to that identity and purpose, you know, it's fallen maybe out of fashion. And, and I'm not sure if that's a recent development, but the statistics say that about 80% of professing Christians in America believe that you can be a good Christian, you can be a good follower of Jesus, and have no commitment at all to the local church. 80%. I can follow Jesus just fine without any involvement in the church. And of course, the church in that case is optional. If you find one you like, great. 
But that's entirely up to you. If you want to be involved and serve, if you want to contribute, again, that's up to you. Um, the church is, is certainly glad to have you around, but we understand if you can't be here. You know, that's the attitude that most churches have kind of taken by default. In fact, there was uh, years ago, I was in a church where the standard for membership was if you showed up one day per year or gave one dollar per year, you would remain on the active membership role of that church. That's, that was the bar that was set. Now, is that what Jesus had in mind when he died for his church? We, we studied this from Ephesians 5 a few weeks ago, that Jesus loves his church and gave himself up for her. He died for us. And is that what he died for, that we, in some sense, could treat the church like we treat a football jersey? We can take it on, we can put it off, we can even throw it away at our choosing. It's not really that important unless we personally consider it valuable to our lives. And of course, the answer is no. No, that's not what Jesus died to produce. And we saw it last week. If you weren't here last week, we put our sermons on our website. Uh, last week's sermon from 1 Peter 2. But there's a uniqueness and a necessity of the church that when God saved you, he made you part of a people, plural, no longer singular, no longer free to do our own thing as we please or as the culture promotes, but now we're part of a plural people and we serve a purpose together. You could say it this way, that the church is God's plan A and there is no plan B. There's no fallback plan that if the church, if we just decide not to be uh, uh, committed to this thing that God's called us to, that he'll, he'll just kind of swoop in and save the day. No, he has established his church as his plan for the world. And beyond that, for us, there's no cafeteria plan that says, I like this or that, but I'm not going to take all that God has called me to when it comes to what we are together. Okay? God has not given us options to choose from here. He's not made it optional as to whether we should be committed to it or not. He's told us, this is who you are now, this is how you live together. And so what we're going to talk about today is uh, a phrase that most of you have at least heard or are familiar with. Is, it's the phrase church membership. You came for the church membership conversation. Aren't you lucky? Um, church membership, and I, you know, you may or may not have a positive connotation when you hear that word. I don't know. I'll tell you the truth. When I was a younger Christian, I thought church membership was a silly idea, even unbiblical. What's the point of that? Um, and maybe you share my, my concern with that. Well, I've changed over the years, not just because I'm a pastor, but I've changed, and I'm going to show you why from the scriptures I believe in this as a matter of utmost importance to us. And so to do that, we're going to start in Hebrews 13. We'll bounce around a little bit, but Hebrews 13, what Jennifer read for us, written to the church, not to individuals merely, but to a, to a community of people. And the author of Hebrews says, verse 15 of chapter 13, he says, through him, through Jesus, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of lips that give thanks to his name. And do not neglect doing good and sharing, for with such sacrifices God is pleased. In other words, do for one another what pleases God. Those are the sacrifices, praising him and doing good and sharing for one another, right? But look at verse 17. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they keep watch over your souls 
as those who will give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with grief, for this would be unprofitable for you. One thing we can safely say about our culture, we are suspicious of authority. There may have been a time where the default belief for people was, you just trust your government, okay? There's a reason they're in Washington. You trust your president, right? You just get behind them and whatever they do, that's right. Well, that may have been the case at one point, I don't know, but that is not the case today. I know almost no one who has that, that sense of a blind trust in politics. Uh, but it's not just politics. Of course, we're told every day you don't, tr- you don't trust the educational system to teach our kids what's right. You don't trust the health care providers. You don't trust law enforcement. Any institution that's out there is corrupt, and therefore they're not worthy of our trust. And of course, the church uh, is not excluded from that list of institutions. Anybody, I mean, you look at what we just read. Obey your leaders and submit to them. Whoa, 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 whoa. I don't think so. Because the church is just like everybody else. They're an institution, right? Which means there's corruption there. All they want is your money. Or maybe, you know, people look at pastors like me and they say, well, he is at best just a used car salesman. That's what pastors are. Or, you know, maybe he doesn't, maybe he's not a bad person, but he is probably a hypocritical, self-righteous kind of pastor who just wants to control your behavior and therefore you can't trust that he has your best interest in mind. Maybe you've heard those things. Maybe you've felt those things in your own heart. And sadly, the reason we don't want to trust authority, even within the church, is that we've seen so many abuses of it that our default position has become, we just don't expect the best of our leaders anymore. Even if they appear shiny and clean on the surface, there's probably something about them that if we knew it, if it came to light, well, then we wouldn't trust them anymore. And so we recognize that, okay? And it, it, we, need to, we need to start from the perspective, when we look at Hebrews 13, That what Hebrews 13 is not saying, it's not saying obey your leaders and submit to them even if they are ungodly and leading you away from Christ. No. The assumption here in this text is that that this kind of leadership in the church is godly and it's genuine. All right, that's the baseline that we're meant to start with in a command like this. And I'll just say this uh, parenthetically. It is really important for me Uh, As the elder of Harvest Church and in time as we appoint other elders to give leadership to this church, that we always reflect the godly leadership that the scripture requires of us. Now, y'all know I'm not perfect and I never will be, but I never, ever, ever want to cut corners when it comes to integrity and trustworthiness. If uh, If you know me, I hope you know my sincerity when I say that. It, it will, we will never appoint a good businessman to be an elder simply because he's a good businessman. We will never do anything that cuts corners on integrity. We want to be trustworthy. Uh, I want you to want to obey this text, okay? And not to have to obey it simply with gritted teeth because you want to love and honor Christ. So when we serve as elders, we're, we're called to an assumption of godliness here. But look at verse 17 again with me. You notice it's not just the command to obey and submit. There's a reason for it. There's a why here. He says in verse 17, Obey your leaders and submit to them in the church, for they keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account. So let them do this with joy and not with grief. That we 
keep watch over your souls and we will give an account to God for that. Now, this verse, of all the verses in the Bible, this is one of those verses that really haunts me. Some of y'all have haunting verses that when you read it, you think, oh man, that's, that's tough. I'm not sure if I measure up, right? I look at Hebrews 13, 17 as a pastor, and it is a troubling verse to me because I recognize the high calling that I've been given. That for me and eventually for all the, the, the men, the elders who will stand in leadership at Harvest Church, that what we're called to do is to keep watch over your souls. We're not called merely to preach sermons and operate programs in the church. We're called to intently shepherd and watch over the people that God brings to us. Paul, and this is in Acts chapter 20, you don't need to turn there, but in Acts 20, Paul is speaking to the elders of the church of Ephesus, and he gives them this charge, Acts 20, 28. He says to the elders of the church, be on your guard for yourselves and also for all the flock, among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God which he purchased with his own blood. Does that give you an insight into the seriousness of church leadership? That Paul commanded the elders, listen, you shepherd these people because Jesus Christ purchased them with his own blood. That was the cost of our salvation. The church, the church exists because Jesus Christ, the Son of God, was willing to shed his blood for us. And so what we're doing here is of absolute importance. There can be no question. But the question that does come up is, okay, Kyle, what does that have to do with church membership? Because remember, you know, at, at some point prior for me as a Christian, I didn't believe in church membership. What, what would Hebrews 13 have to say about that? Well, do, do a little logic here with me. I think this is interesting. Uh, let's take, we're going to look at both my perspective and yours. If, if God has called me to be an elder, a pastor, and it says, uh, keep watch over their souls, who is they? Whose soul am I watching over? Uh, for whom will I give an account to God? That's the, that's the charge. I'm going to give an account to God. For whom? For every Christian in Madison County? For every Christian in my neighborhood, even the ones I don't know? Who am I responsible to watch over? Now think about it from your perspective, from a, a church member's perspective. Uh, who are the leaders that you're being called to obey and submit to? Who are they? Uh, does every pastor in the greater Jackson area have authority to shepherd you? And we say, no, of course not. That's silly. I don't even know the vast majority of the pastors and elders in this area. See, Hebrews 13 and Acts chapter 20, these two verses we've looked at, they assume a clear understanding of the local church. I will give an account to God for specific people, not for people in general, but for specific people that he's brought up under my shepherding. Uh, we all, we will, give an, we, will, uh, we will give an account for the way that we, uh, what, what Hebrews says, that we did this for the joy of the leaders and did not grieve them, right? that the way that we respond to leadership within the church, we're, we're responding to specific people, specific elders. Not any Christian leader somehow has authority over your life to shepherd you. So there is uh, not a clear command to say, go through the system to be a church member, but there's an obvious connection here. 
There's, a, there's an assumption of membership because there's a specificity here of who the leader oversees and who the leader is that we ought to be responsible uh, to submit to. Now, one of the things that this does that I think is really helpful is it smashes apart the false notion of what I call the podcasting Christian. That, uh, again, this is a cultural reality for us that a person might say, uh, I don't really go to church. I'm not part of a church. And here's why. Because I can download all my favorite preacher's sermons on the internet. Right? I get all the preaching I want and then some. And I listen to worship music and I worship in my car on the way to and from work. And I've got Christian friends. We hang out. We even have some Bible study together. Right? What is the church offering me that I'm not already getting in that case? But, see, that assumes that the church is simply a... Uh, a piecing together of individual parts that we do a sermon, we sing a song, we shake hands in fellowship, and that's really all that we are. And in that case, I can outsource those things and I can get my fill on my own time. But no, the church is Christ's body. That's the image that we're given in the scripture. We are the body of Christ and he is the head. He is the leader who, uh, because we have been uh, made into the body of Christ, the scripture says that we are fitted and held together by every joint Right, that we have a connectivity to us, an interdependence, and an accountability to one another. That's what the church is. You can't separate that out and still have the whole. I think I've used this before, but if you take my arm away and set it on the table, my, not only does my arm lose its function and purpose by itself, it's, it's severed off, it dies, but now the whole of my body suffers as well. Everybody loses in that case. Nobody wins. And that is what the church is like when we sever ourselves out and make it about my personal walk with Jesus instead of the thing that God's called us to be. Hey, I listen to podcasts. I've got several pastors that I love to listen to, but they're not my pastor. They don't know me. They're not responsible for me. I enjoy the fruits of their study. That's fine. But I'm not in their church. Romans 12 says we are members one of another. And that's not something you can outsource. So there's an assumption here of membership, of connectivity, and of interdependence that we simply can't ignore, even if our culture says it's okay to live without it. But I want to look, just spend a couple of minutes here as we close. I want to look at how this practically works itself out. And I'm going to use a weird example. I'll just tell you up front. I want you to turn to 1 Corinthians 5. Flip back to the left in your Bible or scroll back on your phone. Go to 1 Corinthians 5 with me here. And I'm going to, I mean... I'll just be honest, this, this is weird, okay, that I would probably turn here. It may not seem that helpful, but I think it's very helpful. What Paul is writing about in 1 Corinthians 5, he's writing to a local church, the church in Corinth, and he's writing to them about a very icky situation, okay? And it's an extreme situation. It's an uncommon situation, but it underscores for us the importance of church Membership, And so we're going to walk through not the whole chapter, but a good portion of it real quickly. And I want you to see three things here with me. Three things that, that the church has to value and that membership um, assumes. That there is accountability, there's distinctiveness, and there's grace. And I'll walk through each one. There's accountability in the church, there's distinctiveness, and there's grace. 1 Corinthians 5, verse 1, Paul is writing to the church. He says, it is actually reported that there is immorality among you, an immorality of such a kind as does not exist even among the Gentiles, 
that someone has his father's wife. You have become arrogant and have not mourned instead, so that the one who had done this deed would be removed from your midst. We'll stop right there. What, what has probably happened in the Corinthian church, there's a man who has a stepmother and a father. His father has died. This is probably what's happened. And this man has now assumed a romantic relationship with his stepmother. That's the icky part, in case you were wondering. There it is. And Paul is actually chastising the church right here because they haven't done anything about this. He says, you've become arrogant. It's almost like they just think they're a cute couple. What's the big deal? And in the Greek, uh, in the Corinthian culture, the pagan Corinthian culture, maybe it wasn't a big deal. And that's, that's the background they came out of, but now they're the church. And so Paul looks upon them and he says, why haven't you done anything about this? Now, our culture isn't really any different in this sense. We carry this attitude. I carry this attitude that says, listen, what, what somebody does in their own home on their own time is nobody's business but theirs. I may not agree with it. I may not like it. But who am I to judge? Who am I to do anything about it? Right? That's their business. But what does Paul say to the church here? He says, y'all should be weeping over this. Why haven't you confronted this man about his behavior? And that's the first point I want to make. There's accountability in the church. Very simply, we see it. There's accountability in the church. The world may say, ah, do whatever makes you happy as long as you don't hurt anybody. You know, just enjoy your life. Do what, do what you want to do. But to be a part of a church says that we have been redeemed, uh, not with perishable things like silver or gold, First Peter, but we have been redeemed by precious blood, the blood of Christ. And therefore, there's something significant about what's been done among us. We're not just a people who are trying harder to be better. We're a people who have been saved by grace. We've been sanctified. We've been called into holiness. And we are responsible to one another to that end. We're responsible to one another. I mean, think about it like this. How unloving is it to see the destructiveness of sin in a brother or sister's life but turn a blind eye to it because I don't want to be impolite. I'm watching it unfold. I know where it's going to lead. I see the path of destruction that this man or woman might be leaving in their wake, but I, I don't want to you know, step on anybody's toes or get up in their business. And see, what we, what we miss in that case is we're being very polite in that case, right? The culture says, hey, he who is without sin cast the first stone. They'll quote Jesus wrongly on issues like that, right? Who am I to judge? But Paul says, you ought to be shedding tears over this issue. You, this, this ought to bother you because of what this man is doing to his own life, but also to what this is doing to the church. And there should be accountability here. Paul elsewhere, Galatians 6, he says, if any one of you is caught in any trespass, you, us, we should restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness. So when I say accountability, you may have a negative perception of that word, especially in the church. When Paul talks about accountability here, he's talking about a loving pursuit of this person so that they may see their sin for what it is and repent, return to Christ and be restored. That's always the goal for us. It's not broadcasting that person's sin for everybody to know and they'll be humiliated. It's not gossiping about them behind their back, right? 
It's, it's the belief, the firm belief, that because we are members one of another, that we are responsible to encourage one another in the battle against sin. None of us is meant to do this alone. And if you've tried to do it alone, you know the threat. Uh, Hebrews also mentions the phrase, the deceitfulness of sin. We can be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. That's one of the reasons in chapter 10 of Hebrews we're told to not neglect our assembling together because together we fight sin better than we do apart. And so let me say this. My sin is your business. It is. And if you see me living in darkness, if you see me engaged in gossip or slander or anything like that, not just because I'm a pastor now and I shouldn't, but because I'm a Christian, and if you don't lovingly pursue me to help me see my sin that I might repent and return to Christ, then you're not being polite. You're not doing me any good. Now that may seem abrasive, but that's the call of the scripture here. We together are, are pursuing God as obedient children, and we're doing this together. Therefore, there's accountability. There ought to be. In the Corinthian church, there was no accountability. And Paul says, uh, you have therefore become arrogant. You think you know better than God concerning righteousness, and you don't. You need to act. Now, what follows accountability is the word distinctiveness, that the church has a distinctiveness. Look at, uh, this is 1 Corinthians 5 again. Look at verse 9. Paul says, I wrote you in my, in my letter, there's a previous letter, not to associate with immoral people. I did not at all mean with the immoral people of this world or with the covetous and swindlers or with idolaters, for then you would have to go out of the world. But actually, I wrote to you not to associate with any so-called brother if he is an immoral person or covetous or an idolater or a reviler or a drunkard or a swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Do you not judge those who are within the church? But those who are outside, God judges. Remove the wicked man from among yourselves. Now, this is a significant point. You notice what Paul is saying here? It's not the job of the Christian to judge the outside world. And by outside, I mean people who don't share our faith in Christ. And therefore, they don't share our standard as to what is right and wrong. That's not our job. Facebook, your friends on Facebook may tell you otherwise that it's our job to throw stones constantly at the outside world. They don't believe in Christ. Why should we expect them to act like they do? That's not our job. Paul says God judges the world just fine. He doesn't need us to do that. But we are responsible within the church. And the point that I think Paul is making here is this. If anything goes in the church, then the church might as well not exist at all. What are we here for if we act, look and act and tolerate everything that the world tolerates? That we, that we, and, and you've heard this before, I mean, you've, maybe many times. I'm not going to church, it's full of hypocrites. They don't act any different than me. They're not any better than me. They, you know, right? Their standards aren't any different than mine. And sadly, that's true enough for most people and a lot of church people that we have lost our witness, our distinctiveness to the world. And so Paul's concern here is on multiple levels. There's a sinful man. His sin needs to be dealt with for his sake. We'll talk about that in a minute. But for the church's sake, y'all are going to lose your witness to your culture. Your culture sees no problem with that behavior. But if you tolerate it, if you coddle it and make it okay, then all of a sudden now you have no witness. The gospel has no, has no bite to it because they're not going to see you as distinct. What does it mean to be a Christ follower? Apparently not much if anything goes in the church. Jesus said it this way, you are the salt of the earth, 
But if salt becomes tasteless, if salt loses its saltiness, how will it be made salty again? Jesus said it's good for nothing anymore except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. So here's the, here's the truth for us. Being a member of a church is not just signing a card and getting on the rolls. Okay? It's a declaration of distinction. Are we better than other people? No. We talked at length about that last week. We're not. That's not why we're here. We're here by grace, right? But grace transforms us. That's one of the key values of our church. Grace transforms. Grace is not something that exists only in the spiritual plane out there. It takes hold of our heart and it changes our character. And to be part of a church is to say, listen, we we have a saltiness about us that the world, when the world takes a look at who we are and what we're about, they have to take notice and they should not be able to explain away the kind of people that God is creating among us. Paul says, we didn't read it, but he says in the same chapter, a little bit of leaven leavens the whole lump of dough. A little bit of yeast will get into the whole lump, right? If we tolerate this, Paul says, then you've opened up the floodgates and you've lost your witness to the world. We're distinctive. That's part of what it means to be a member of a church. Now, these two ideas, accountability and distinctiveness, I mentioned this, they can be abrasive, and maybe even scary. And it's possible that you, at some point in your own church history, that you have been burned by an overemphasis on these things. And I'll just tell you the truth about me. I'm sure this is true for all of us. Nobody wants to be in a church where we so overemphasize accountability that we become all about behavioral legalism, that here's the standard, and if you don't obey the standard, you're out of here. Okay? That's not a church. That's not a biblical church that really acts that way. Uh, we're not going to overemphasize these issues to the point that they become about our behavior merely, um, only to the degree that our behavior reflects grace. And that's why this third point is really important. There's accountability, there's distinctiveness, but there's grace. Because we're a people of grace. I said it before, we didn't earn our way in here. We didn't, we didn't get here because we, we were accountable to a standard that we all achieved, and look how great we are. No, we got here, we're here now. We have been grafted into the church as a gift from God in His grace. Unworthy as I am, I'm here because God is gracious. And I want you to see, Paul is being very hard on this church, and he's being very hard on this this immoral man. But what is his motivation? His motivation is grace. Look back at verse 5, 1 Corinthians 5, 5. This is a, a, a weird verse, but listen to what he's saying. I have decided, Paul says, As the leader here, I have decided to deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of his flesh. What that that sounds probably worse than you think. Um, What he's saying is, I'm going to kick this guy out of your gathering, out of the spiritual covering of the church. I'm kicking him out, right? Um, Because, and look at the second half of this verse, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. Paul has determined vicariously, he's, not, he's writing a letter to them, he's not there, but he has figured out that the wickedness of this man shows forth that this man does not know the Lord. Paul determines that he is not a Christian. And therefore, Paul says, we're not going to coddle his sin. We're not going to turn a blind eye to it and excuse it away. Paul says, I decree as the, as the apostle of Christ, send this guy out of your gathering. Now that seems, of course, that's the harshness that we've been talking about. That doesn't, that doesn't seem right. I mean, how's he going to come to Christ if, if we don't love him and, you know, and accept him? And you no, know, Paul says, listen, if you will exclude him, he will see his sin for what it is. You've coddled it. 
and it, and it continues. He's not going to change, right? Remove him, Paul says, and he will see it for what it is. He will repent, and he will become a Christ follower after all. That's Paul's ambition here. It's grace. It seems harsh, of course, yes, but it's grace. He wants this man to know Christ, to be saved. And so on the one hand, we see this, the purity of the church matters. Paul says, you can't turn a blind eye to this. It's not okay to just let it go. The purity of the church is too important. A little leaven will leaven the whole lump. Um, but the grace of Jesus prevails. Why, are we, why, am I, why am I stepping in so harshly in this moment? Because this man needs Christ, and he will see it more clearly outside than he will inside. Now, that may seem counterintuitive to us, but that's the Apostle Paul talking. So he wants this man to come to know Christ because grace ultimately is our foundation. This man will be saved once he recognizes the extremity of his sin and the, the extremity of this, in this sense, this punishment. Now, I'll say this again. This is uncommon. I mean, I've never personally as a pastor been in a situation where we had to do this, okay? So, don't, I mean, I, I'm not using this example because one of y'all, I mean, we, need, we need to have a conversation, okay? No, like, I'm using this as an example because it shows the value of church membership. Listen, if we're just autonomous Christians doing our own thing and we just decide to come together every now and then, then we have nothing to say to the immoral man in this situation. He's just living his life, right? What can we do about it? I got nothing to say. But if we're interconnected and interdependent, if we are the people of God called for the purposes of God, then we have to address this man and his circumstance for his sake and his salvation, but also for the church's sake, because our witness is too valuable to let it become perverted by tolerating what's happening right in front of our eyes. Okay? So what Paul, I hope you see what Paul is saying is not ungracious, it's quite gracious. And I hope you also know that, that if you know me and if you know us and what we stand for, we are not going to be the kind of church that upholds behavioral legalism as the standard here. We are a people of grace. I've said it this way. We are trophies of God's grace on display for his glory. Right? I don't deserve to be here. I'll say it now. I don't deserve to be here. You don't either. Right? We are people of grace. Um, and so accountability and distinctiveness, the grace is the foundation of those things. We always come back to that, and that's what gives us gentle hearts when we talk about these issues. So let me, let me just, let's close this way. The church, we are a people who belong to God, but we also belong to each other, and there's no getting around that. We belong to God, but we belong to each other, and therefore we are not a bunch of imposters wearing a jersey that doesn't belong to us. We're not merely sitting in the stands cheering on vicariously somebody else doing the great work in the mission of God. No, the Bible tells us that because we are the church, we are on the team, we are in the game, and there is an eternally significant purpose that God has given us to fulfill together. What we do, what we're doing right now, what we do when we walk out of these doors, it impacts eternity. That is, that is no exaggeration. This is how important the church is. And so as we begin in, in the coming weeks, we're going to begin to unpack more of the meaning and also the process of church membership at Harvest Church. I mean, we're going to, we're going to start to walk this out as to what it means, what it looks like, uh, what it entails. Here's what I want to ask y'all, is that you would sincerely pray about it. Some of y'all are further down the road. You say, yes, sign me up right now. Some of you are, are you need more time. Uh, or that's that the, the, the consideration is not even on your, uh, on your radar at all. That's fine. But I'd invite you, if you have seen 
and been a part of what we are doing here, if you see the vision, if you recognize that God is among us and he is gracious and, and God perhaps would call you and your family to lock arms with what we're doing, I want you to really engage the Lord in prayer on this. Because as I've said, membership here will be meaningful. It will not be sign your name and you're in. And then, do, you know, just do what, do, do what you want to do and we'll just be glad to have you on the list, okay? Um, nobody wins in that regard. The church doesn't succeed when membership becomes a very flimsy thing, and you don't either, because then we don't get to live out the joy of the things we've talked about today. And so membership will be a meaningful thing, and it's, it's a high and precious calling for us. It's not something we should take lightly. And so I want you to pray about it, because what it ultimately is for us, it's an affirmation of our salvation, that is our identity in Christ, but it's also the application of our identity in Christ. It doesn't just affirm what Jesus has done for us, but it's the application of it that I am committing to a group of brothers and sisters that we're going to walk this thing out together, that we're going to hold each other up, that we're going to bear one another's burdens, that we're going to rejoice with those who rejoice, we're going to weep with those who weep, we're going to live this life out in, in, um, in deep communion with our Heavenly Father uh, and one another. That's ultimately what membership's about. And if that violates perhaps the preconceived notion you've had of church membership, well, it does for me too. I haven't always thought that it's a good thing. But now I think not only is it a good thing, but it's an essential thing that God has called us together for. And so what we ultimately pursue in this is the simplicity of our vision. We're going to grow and multiply disciples of Jesus. We will never achieve that, and you'll never achieve that autonomously. We do it together. And just like synergy, right, uh, the, the, the power of the whole is greater than the sum of the parts, right? We're, you, we all have great gifts and intellect, and y- y'all are awesome, okay? But the power of the whole is greater than we are individually. And, and, and God does things within churches who are unified and purposeful and loving and gracious. God does things in churches like that um, that we wouldn't even believe. And that's my hope and prayer for us. So I ask you to pray for it. Be in prayer about it. Ask me questions about it. We'll, We'll unfold it more as we go. But this is why it matters. And to this end, let's pray. Father, we have um, a very precious calling here. We are called, Lord, not to be church members universally, just because I'm a Christian. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm brothers and sisters with every Christian around the world. That's true. That's wonderfully true. But Lord, we're called locally, that in the places we live and work and play, that we, are, uh, that we regularly and lovingly attend to the lives of our brothers and sisters in Christ, that we're, uh, we're responsible to one another. Um, and Lord, you know, I've, I've grown up my whole life. I don't want to be accountable. I don't want to be responsible. You know, it's, it's about me and that's enough. And Father, I, I need a, 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 con- a constant change of heart in this uh, regard. This, this is a hard pill for us to swallow, perhaps, uh, to recognize, Lord, that, that you've called us to something where we don't, we're not the hero. I'm not the hero. You are. That Christ is our head, that he is our chief shepherd. 
and uh, that we, we, are, we are part of something that's so much bigger and more significant than only us. And so, Lord, where we may struggle with that, I pray for humility, that you show us the grace of the gospel that humbles us. But I do pray also, Lord, that, that where perhaps we have been uh, burned or hurt by churches in the past, by, where, whereas maybe we have a negative view of this kind of accountability, um, Father, be very gracious to us in that, because that's real. We, we perhaps have been hurt. But Lord, remind us that, um, that, that that circumstance or that assumption that we're making, that does not tell the story of what you've really done here. That you shed your blood for the church. That you, Lord, uh, that you have purified for yourself a people for your own possession, zealous for good deeds. Lord, we're, this, is, this is your plan A and there is no plan B. And so, Father, maybe where, we've, where, we've, uh, where we want to kind of push back on this, Lord, would you, would you very graciously show us your truth and, um, and remind us, Lord, that we are severed if we, if we neglect this. We lose uh, life and, uh, and fruit, and the church suffers too. And so, Father, encourage us in this word, I pray. And, um, and Lord, just call us, to, call us to a next step. Call us to a next step. Um, that we would be the kind of people, Lord, that, uh, that joyfully engage in accountability because we're fighting this battle together. That we want to be distinctive, Lord. We, we know that the work you've done in us is to, is, makes a difference, and we want that difference to be clear to the world. And Lord, give us uh, just profound grace. We, we will mess this up, um, and we need grace. Uh, every single day we need grace. So we ask these things um, in Jesus' name. Amen.